Hello, and welcome to the podcast we are calling Life in Words. This is a podcast where I and my co-host, Tom, will be talking about books that have moved us or interested us or illuminated different parts of our lives as we've gone along from being the young people we once were to the sober and seasoned adults that we now pretend to be. My name is Nate Beyer, and our book this week is The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. It's a book that I first read when I was, uh, I think, about 11 or so, 11 or 12. At the time, that was, uh, of course, the horrendous middle school years, which are a low point in many people's lives. I was, I don't want to say friendless, but I would say I was very friend-challenged. I didn't have a ton of friends. My family kind of moved around a lot. My mom and dad, you know, were not together. So there was a lot of sort of bouncing around on my part. So, um, and this is, of course, way before the internet or cell phones or any of that fun stuff. So I read. I ended up reading a lot. And like a lot of young boys, gravitated towards science fiction, fantasy, anything that was imaginative. Part of it is I didn't know enough about life to really appreciate like a very realistic portrait of life. That would have seemed like science fiction to me too at the time. So um, I wandered into science fiction and Ray Bradbury and I I read the the Martian Chronicles at that time and recently reread them for this podcast and that's what we're going to talk about today. I'd also like to introduce my co-host, Tom. Tom, take it away. Thanks, Nate. My name is Tom Oliveri. I have a similar background. I unfortunately had an adolescence and I went to middle school. I didn't have quite the same story. You know, my family's very tight and we didn't move, but I did end up reading a lot as a kid and I gravitated towards some things that were historical, but mainly what we would classify today as fantasy. Back in those days, I think everything was called science fiction. Yeah, there was basically one category for stuff that was not uh, that was not realistic, and that was science fiction. I didn't realize at the time what a sophisticated category it would be. Right. I thought it was mainly escapist. That's all I really wanted. I just wanted some escape at that point. I mean, it just seemed to me like it was really fun to think about life on Mars, because life on Earth kind of sucked a little bit. No one goes to middle school on Mars. <laughs> That's right. That's true. In the entirety of the Martian Chronicles, there is no middle school. It's excellent. So let's let's get to it. What did you think? What was what were your what were your impressions rereading this some I don't want to say for me probably 30 years later, 30 whatever years later. What did you think? We chose the book and then I got nervous, and I didn't look at it for a while because I was scared it would not be as good as I remembered it. Right. And I was absolutely delighted to find that it was far better than I remembered. Mm. It wasn't escape at all. It's yeah. a, it's really a tackling of my current problems. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I hear you completely. It's funny because, at least in the Martian Chronicles, and I know some of his other books um, are different, but it seems like he's a science fiction writer who isn't really that interested in technology. Like, there's not a ton of, like, high-tech gadgets and gizmos that he populates the book with. It's really about people. They don't even have cell phones. I know. Their telephones <laughs> ring, and they're, they're wired to the wall. It's, it's wonderful. They're living in Mars with dial phones, no cell phones. 
That's true. They and uh, there's no phasers. I mean, there are a couple of weapons that he describes the Martians as having early on, but it's really kind of I don't know. I realized quickly in my rereading of it that it really was not about Mars as much as it was just about these characters and human problems and human beings on the canvas of Mars, which could be anything and did in fact become a variety of things as he moves through sort of story after story. And the Martians themselves didn't resemble science fiction aliens. They were fairy creatures. Right. Yes. Right. That's a good point. In all science fiction, whenever you see words like telepathy or psionics. Right. Bradbury thankfully doesn't use the word psionics. but mm, Yeah, no. The Martians are telepathic. They're, they're magical. They're magical creatures. They do seem to have this weird magic. You're right. Absolutely. Even in the very first. And I should say, just, just to back up for a second, for those of you who haven't yet read the book, uh, A, you should. B, it's actually not in the form of a novel. We're not following one story of a human or group of humans going to Mars and colonizing Mars in some way. It's a series of stories that are in some cases interconnected, in some cases interconnected sort of closely, but in many cases not really interconnected at all. You're seeing it chronologically uh, over a series of years, which starts in, I think, 1999 or 98 is the first, or uh, 1999, 1998 is the first one. So, um, So as we talk about this, keep in mind that the stories are all sort of disparate and some stories go off in one direction and, and some go, on, go off in another. There's not one overarching story that we're following. So anyway, go on. You'd be hard-pressed to find a good science fiction story that takes up an entire novel. For Fahrenheit me, 451 is right. three separate stories. Okay. And I think most yeah. science fiction works are like that. My last, my last foray into science fiction was a few years later with Douglas Adams. And that trilogy of books, um, Restaurant at the End of the Universe and all of that, uh, which was sort of satirical science fiction. So I kind of got off the science fiction bandwagon a little bit as I moved through adolescence. But to go back to the Martian Chronicles, I was really struck by, you know, I was trying to kind of figure out, did he write all of these stories and get them published and then sort of work in? Because the, there are some smaller fragmentary stories that are really little set pieces that sometimes occupy space between stories to kind of fill you in on what's going on. He does talk about that a little bit. Mm. And he does talk about how he had written all of these and he had published some of them. The definitive Ray Bradbury biography is not out there yet. Not yet. But we do get these kind of tall tales from him about how he would sell one story a month to the pulp magazines and live off of $20 supporting his mother. Those were the days, folks. Yeah. But some of these were published. Mm-hmm. And some of them, you know, he says he wrote them in the French style, these little contemplative pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of them are almost like parables. They are almost have a quasi-religious quality to them. I mean, you can see how much Bradbury is interested in morality, uh, because so many of his characters uh, are deluded. It's like they come to Mars looking for, well, obviously, you know, wealth, or they want to sort of take over and bring all of these sort of mid-century American values of progress and whatever with them, and it kind of destroys them. You know, that need for, for whatever it is they're looking for kind of destroys them in a way. There's a character named Spencer early on, 
Yeah. And I don't want to give this away because it's a beautiful story. It's, it's a great story. It's in the book. Yeah. Uh, but he understands that in order to colonize Mars, you have to destroy Mars and remake right. it into Earth. Right. We've already ruined one planet. Why ruin another? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, he actually, this character of Spencer be, kind of becomes, in the course of one story, kind of like a, a anthropologist of the Martians. He kind of translates many Martian texts and becomes a, starts to study their culture uh, and kind of wants to try to preserve it and sees kind of sees correctly that the human beings coming here, the earthlings, are just going to destroy it. And it's funny because I'm not sure what Ray Bradbury's attitude towards that. I mean, he definitely sees that as a negative. But some of the actions that Spencer takes, which you can probably guess at if you haven't read it, uh, they're extreme. And I wondered if you got a sense of what Bradbury, as the author, what he was... Do you think he's saying that that's okay, especially considering that some of these characters come back towards the end of the book. You see some of these characters again. Where where, where do you think Brad, Bradbury's sympathy lies? Whatever Spencer does, he's a much deeper person than Sam Parkill is. Who's an asshole. I mean, you just who, have to Who say. really is. He's, he's set up to be a jerk. And But Sam is the one who gets to open the first hot dog stand on Mars. <laughs> That's true. He comes back to open the first hot dog stand on Mars. It has maybe the most singularly bizarre story in the book. It is. It is bizarre. It is bizarre. It's a beautiful story in a way. It is. It but is. Sam doesn't understand what, what he's doing or what's happening around him. No. Spencer does. Right. Um, and what kind of... What kind of people are they? What kind of actions are justified from right? Well, you kind of have this. You kind of have this triangulation of characters in that particular story, which is the fourth expedition to Mars. The first three, I think it's the fourth. The first three don't go very well. The humans are are they don't fare well, let's say. But the fourth expedition comes, and there are no, there are very few living Martians left at that time. And so it's a crew of, of men, uh, and I'll get into that, the, to the gender part of it, because that did strike me, but it's a crew of men. And the three main characters are the captain, whose name is Wilder. There's this guy, Spencer, who we've been talking about, and then Tom brought up Parkhill, the character Sam Parkhill. And Parkhill is kind of a, oh, how to describe him? He's, you know, kind of a quick-tempered this land is my land, it's not your land kind of guy. He's very comfortable with just throwing trash into the Martian ravines and whatever. And Spencer, as we've been talking about, is kind of this, almost an anthropologist. He has a deep sympathy for the Martians. He has a deep connection that he feels almost immediately with the Martian landscape. And then the captain is sort of in the middle. That's the sort of triangulation. The captain is somewhere in the middle. He has to be the captain. He has a responsibility to the crew. He has a responsibility to whoever has sent him from Earth. But he's not unsympathetic to, to Spencer's position. In fact, he does spend quite some time talking to him. So that's sort of the setup of triangulation. And Wilder, you know, appears again later in the book. Um, so we do have that kind of reference point of what happens to Wilder. And if you want to look at it that way, you know, Wilder does survive, yes, but his point of view, 
let's just say what happens to him within this enormous bureaucracy that is sending people to explore space, he's sort of shuttled to the side, this sort of softer, gentler, third-way approach between the extremes of Park Hill, the ugly American, and Spencer, who's, you know, sort of the nice guy, wants to preserve Mars for the Martian culture, which he sees as very beautiful. That third way, he actually, though he survives, he, he appears to wield very little of any power. And at the end, you see him doing something which is, I think, understandable, but also see, feels kind of like a futile gesture. So I think in this triangulation, within the framework of this story, Wilder is there for you, the reader, to sympathize with and say, yes, that's me. That's where I would go with it. But in the larger view, Bradbury, surprisingly to me, is quite the pessimist. He says, you know, no, no, no. This, he seems to be saying that this third way of moderation between extremes is doomed. That in fact, Park Hill is frankly, obviously an asshole. Wilder seems to be sensible, but is ineffective. And Spencer is done. I mean, he's he's got great ideals, I think, but he's done and he, and he commits acts of violence. So it's a very complicated moral picture. And I think that if you look at authorial voice and authorial authority, it's a little bit like Bradbury's pessimistic about them all. Anyway... You, you you mentioned the, the the gender differences here. Oh yeah, this is a book that was published in 1950. The yep. the stories that were published were published from 1948 to 1950. And Bradbury not only and I think this is fascinating, not only does he give us the Earthmen of 2030 1950s yeah. attitudes, but also the Martians. Right. The Martians aren't that different. We see the Martians at home. Yes, in the first story. In the very first story, it begins with a Martian couple. A, a, a man a man Martian and a woman Martian. Living the way our grandparents did. Exactly. It's so bizarre. And that that is one thing that it took me a minute to adjust to. It's like, okay, it's one of the sort of catch-22s of science fiction is that we can reimagine or imagine a whole ton of stuff but what stuff remains? And it's definitely, it did seem like this is a, a husband and wife arrangement like you'd have in 1950. I mean, the man calls the shots and the woman is trying to be uh, the, the good housewife. And by the way, they're Martians living on Mars. She's trying to be the good housewife, but she's also feeling restricted in that position. We've already gotten to the point where it's 1950s, that, right. that 1950 housewife feeling is already perceived as being restrictive. And in Bradbury's defense, I mean, he gets that. He gets that she's having these dreams of, of an Earthman coming and, and kind of having what is probably a romantic or sexual liaison with, with the Earthman in her dreams. You know, this is, you got to understand, this is part of the, as Tom mentioned, that the, these Martians have this ability to do, to have telepathy. There's this dream thing that's woven into the first story. So she's having these dreams, which certainly do seem sexual, about this Earthman. So so in Bradbury's defense, he gets that this is a conventional male-female relationship, married relationship that he's looking at, and the woman is, as much as she tries to be the good housewife, is also far from being fulfilled. And the husband, frankly, seems like a jerk. Just a kind of classic American dad kind of jerk. 
Anyway, that is the one story where there's a, there's a technologically advanced weapon that appears. Which in true Ray Bradbury style, it's, it's not like a ray gun that you would find in a 50s science fiction movie or in Star Trek or whatever. It's like this gun that shoots metal bees that sting you to death. <laughs> I love that concept. I know, it's amazing. We live in such a, a visual age. Mm-hmm. We forget that when you watch a science fiction movie, it's 50 years out of date. Right. Star Trek is kind of retreading Buck Rogers. Sure. Absolutely. It was written at the same time of Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellison yep. and Frederick Pohl and all these great science fiction writers. But Star Trek is regressive. And Star Wars is regressive. But Ray Bradbury, he's not even progressive the way Harlan Ellison would be or Frederick mm-hmm. Pohl would be. Okay. He's going down his own way entirely. I mean, the Metal Bees is, is terrifying. It would be terrible to shot be shot by a cloud of Metal Bees that would be stung to death. Yeah, that would be. In fact, I had a little phobia of bees when I was a kid because I was so afraid of being stung. So that idea was terrible. And later on in, in the story, there will come soft rains, I think mm-hmm. is it, it is, where it's got an automated house. And this is interesting because, of course, today we have smart houses. I don't really know. I mean, I don't, you know, just full disclosure, I don't live in a smart house. Um, I don't have any of that kind of programming. But I guess people can. If you're a millionaire today, you could have a, a smart house. And the if you would, actually want it. If you want it. Yeah, yeah. And it would clean itself and it would do all these things. And in, in this story, um, There Will Come Soft Rains, the house does clean itself. But it cleans itself with like an army of, of mice, like cleaning mice. And and there are uh, rats that come out of the walls that are mechanical that also have a function in terms of cleaning or housework or whatever. So there's a way in which Bradbury's imagination takes the form of the natural world. Like he really actually, he's heavily invested in, in the natural world in animals and plants. There's another story where there's a sort of Johnny Appleseed of Mars, who's a, a human, who kind of comes up, and of course, I mean, as you can imagine, if we were going to colonize Mars, and Mars had an atmosphere we could live on, which it does in the Martian Chronicles, the first thing we would do, of course, is try to exploit every mineral deposit, every everything we could exploit to bring back to Earth to make money. <clears throat> and one of these guys who comes out the, fir- the first wave of these people starts planting trees in this sort of Johnny Appleseed way of planting trees everywhere to try to get more oxygen into the atmosphere. And in this wonderful, like, it's one of these things where... Great fairy moment. It is a fairy moment. It's a fantasy moment. It's such a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. So, you know, he's traveling through the Martian countryside, which is desolate. I think it it must have been that even in Bradbury's day, they understood that Mars was pretty desolate looking. It didn't, you know, may have had water once, but it doesn't now kind of thing. So he's traveling through this dusky landscape planting these trees in hopes and watering them a little bit. You know, he's carrying some water with him. And then he goes to sleep at the end of the day. And the next morning he wakes up, and I'll, I'll just give a little bit of a spoiler here, that the trees have grown massive. In the morning sun, they just sort of sprout up 20, 30, 40, 50 feet high because of whatever is sort of dormant life force in the soil over has sort of fueled this growth. And it is like this fantasy moment. It's not a, it's not a science fiction moment. No. It's yeah, at the time, uh, if you look at 40 science fiction, yeah, our two, our two options for our solar system 
would be Mars, which is dry and habitable, mm -hmm. and Venus, which was watery and hostile. And you'll find that theme over and over again. Oh, really? Right. There's a wonderful Bray Bradbury story where a group of soldiers end up fighting on Venus. Mm. And their chief problem isn't the fighting, it's that they can't keep dry. <laughs> that is a problem. problem. Yeah, it, that, <laughs> that is so funny. And that does seem like exactly where Bradbury focuses his imagination on, the, on these things that wouldn't necessarily strike you as problems. But if you're a soldier and you're on a planet where it's constantly raining, that would be a huge problem. I mean, that would be maddening. And then it would be like you'd get, you know, trench foot and all the other, you know, fungal diseases of being wet constantly would be unbearable. That's where I wonder is, I wonder if Bradbury thought of himself as a science fiction writer, because some of his books truly aren't science fiction. I mean, a book like Dandelion Wine, which is kind of this nutty book that's more indebted to, you know, 1919, um, this, I think it's a fictional town that he makes up in Illinois which is very much like his hometown that he writes about in Dandelion Wine. I mean, that's, even though it has this the novel with fantastical elements, that's not at all, I think, a, a science fiction book. And I wonder if Bradbury, do you know, did Bradbury consider himself a science fiction writer? He's certainly in line with the science fiction of his youth. Yeah. I think by the 50s, everyone knew that Venus was not watery. Right. It's this kind of hellish landscape right where it rains mercury and you know nothing could survive and mars was indeed barren right but his mind is still in this kind of buck rogers place <laughs> right and i don't think he cares about the science right he's no, telling he us stories about ourselves right well there's a quote that's from the final story of the book which i think kind of sums up he has of course a character is saying it one of the characters who's finally sort of on mars to probably to stay um and he's talking at just well, at he had the, better want to stay because he's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere, that is for sure. And he says, uh, and this is about this is after, and we can talk about too what happened in um, what happens in Earth because the funny thing about the Martian Chronicles is you have all of this stuff going on in Earth that you sort of are getting secondhand by what's going on in Mars because people are in some cases talking about what's happening back on Earth, in some cases they're. Um, they're they're there because of what's happening back on Earth. They can they can physically look up and see it in some cases at towards the end of the book. Uh, anyway, so the the guy um, and we have different copies of this book. I will say I've got the cheapest possible copy of the Martian Chronicles, and and Tom has a lovely copy that looks much much more like a real book. I looked for the cheapest copy. Did you? But I this is the one I could get on okay. the day I was at the bookstore. Good for you. Good for you. It looks, it looks, Tom's looks much more serious than my, mine looks like a, a dime store, you know, paperback uh, from 1960. I have one to pass on to my, my children when they, <laughs> right. when they take the rocket out. Excellent. Yes. When they take the rocket to Mars. Okay. So in the last, and I think this is, this is Bradbury sort of speaking through a character and he's saying of earth, science ran too far ahead of us too quickly. And the people got lost in a mechanical wilderness, like children making over pretty things, gadgets, <clears throat> helicopters, rockets, emphasizing the wrong items, emphasizing machines instead of how to run the machines. Wars got bigger and bigger and finally killed Earth. That's what the silent radio means. That's what we ran away from. So I think in that, I mean, I think there is... 
you know, Bradbury speaking there that he is at, at heart quite distrustful of technology. Or he's quite distrustful of us. Well, that too. <laughs> Remember Frankenstein's monster? Yeah. There was yeah. nothing wrong with the monster. It was a perfectly right. fine monster. Right. Victor was Frankenstein awesome. was not wrong to create the monster. He was wrong to abandon it. Right. Victor Frankenstein, you know, this undergrad who creates this guy. Right. Is the worst teenage parent in history. <laughs> and I right. think that is what Ray Bradbury is telling us. You know, we can do these things, but we have to improve. Yeah, it's not Maybe the machines. Maybe the most beautiful story in here is the fire balloons. Mm. Mm. Um, and I don't, I don't want to give this away because I don't want to rob the listeners of this. Right, I agree. This marvelous story, but there is the chance that we can be better than what we are. Right. If we search for that. Right. But if all we care about is opening up a hot dog stand on Mars. Right. <laughs> then we're, we're, yeah, and that's, I mean, that does actually have a lot of of relevance today. I mean, obviously, we're at a point where a lot of people are questioning, why should we care for the Earth? Why should we, you know, we have kind of two sides to that coin of of either we need to do everything, we need to make a massive sea change in order to stop climate change or to slow climate change. And then we have other people who say, but, you know, we all need jobs and we have to have jobs and we have to have our, you know, we have to have a hot dog stand. So I think that's still very much relevant today as to what we're doing with the actual Earth that we live on. Since we're not getting to Mars anytime soon, I don't think, and I don't think we could colonize Mars quite in the way that Bradbury envisions anyway. The interesting thing, too, is all this stuff is happening back on Earth, which at times it sounds like Earth is very dystopian. There's definitely a little bit of the Fahrenheit 451, which, of course, is Bradbury's dystopian novel about a, you know, a regime that's essentially into book burning and limiting or, or destroying human knowledge and human creativity, particularly in keeping the imagination very tamped down and regulated. And that comes through in the book as well. There was that mid-century contempt of science fiction and fantasy. Mm. And this modernist drive to have everything be contemporary and a direct commentary on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is great if you're young F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. But not even old F. Scott Fitzgerald wanted to do that. Well, he didn't get very old, that's for sure. Yeah, he wrote Benjamin Button. He wrote, right. Right. That's he wrote true. a share of science fiction fantasy. Yeah, Benjamin Button does does definitely fit into this, this tradition. And it's funny because I would see Benjamin Button as actually something that Bradbury would be much more akin to than some of the stuff that came after him. I mean, it's that kind of almost inexplicable variation from the norm or change from the norm that Bradbury does that's not really science fiction, but is more like fantasy. It is, it's just sort of there. And Bradbury does not feel like he has to explain anything. No. There are abandoned Martian cities. Yep. What happened to the Martians? It's really not our business. Right, right. Although he does mention, you know, what kills the Martians. Should I give it away? It's chicken pox. Yeah, which, is, which I think has been used several times. I think that, that in Spielberg's War of the Worlds, I believe it's also chicken pox that kills the aliens at the end of that movie. Well, that, that's that's what happens in the books too. Yeah, oh, is is it? I didn't. I don't okay. think it's specifically chickenpox. I think it's just germs. Right, germs. Right. The very exciting new field of microbiology. <laughs> right, right. And also the idea that that what we have as a fairly innocuous childhood illness could actually be 
deadly to the point of wiping out a complete alien race, like stem to stern. They're done. But in one of the interesting, the, the second, I think it's the second expedition to Mars, and one of the stories that I particularly like, because it's, it's everything that you might assume that Ray Bradbury, given the time that he lived in, the time that he was born in, might, might gravitate towards, is kind of stood on its ear. So what happens in this story is you have the second expedition to Mars, and they touch down on the surface of Mars, and what happens is the, the rocket touches down on Mars and the gentleman astronauts look out and they see what looks like an American town. Uh, I think like Elk Grove Village, Illinois or something they, they proclaim it as. You know, it just looks, looks like exactly like one of these towns on Earth that they've just left. From 1950. It's the memory right. of... This town that was actually a few decades before. They, they're they cautious at first, right? They feel like, well, we've come a long ways. We're on a different planet. This doesn't seem to make sense. But, you know, they, they send a, a party out to take a look around and see what's going on. And as they go out, they find, they all run into these relatives who have died. So there's this whole moment where you as a reader are thinking, is this heaven? Is this some sort of parallel dimension? Or is something else going on here? What's going on? But it's done in this way where you're welcomed into what is a fairly sentimental look into these people's lives. Sentimental in in that they get caught up in, oh my gosh, here's my brother Will who has died. Here's mom who has passed away. All of these people come back and they each, each of these astronauts, as they're sort of welcomed into this, what is a very recognizable family unit, people from the past, everything, you know, it's almost like they can't resist it. They can't resist this, this incredible pull of seeing all these people again and having conversations. And they go, each of them goes to their familial home with these members of their family who have passed away and they have a night together. And then of course things change and I don't want to give away what happens, but it changes. And I think Ray Bradbury is very aware that that kind of sentiment almost sentimentality. I don't want to call it complete sentimentality because who wouldn't be moved by seeing dead relatives seem to come back to life? But he's very aware that the longing, it's the longing for this connection to the past could be toxic, could actually lead to uh, some very tragic ends. As the book progresses, the human characters become lonelier and lonelier. Uh, at the beginning, we see people together. Yeah. And that becomes rarer and rarer as you go on. It's true. Um, and there's something about Mars that... Or the, there's something about the structure of this book that creates this this world of loneliness. Right. And who who wouldn't be affected by it? Right. If you could return to your childhood home and all of the people that you've lost... Right. Who wouldn't do that? And that actually becomes more and more acute. Uh, one of my favorite stories comes at the end with Tom, the little boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that killed me. The thing about the story about little Tommy is that little Tommy is, um, well, how do I put it? It's Little Tommy becomes many other people in the story. It's hard to talk about it without giving it away. Right. And I don't want to give away the whole thing. But the, the Martians are lonely. Yes. And the colonists are lonely. Right. 
and somehow they can't make this work. Right. You even see a Martian coming from the past. He doesn't know that Mars right. has been depopulated. Right. It's, it was depopulated even before the chicken pox. Mm. Uh, Mars is a dying planet, which right. is a, an old theme, I think, in science fiction. It's almost like these two characters meet. And there's a nexus of time. They're each, they're each going to a party. Right. But and they can't go together. It's a little bit odd to explain, but in the story it works. And it, it like Tom was saying, it kind of highlights a sense of two isolated individuals with these separate destinies that have such similar desires in a way. They have this similar loneliness, this similar desire to connect with the community, but can't do it, but just can't seem to get it together ever to actually connect. Where would you put Bradbury in terms of, because you know more about the sort of depth and breadth of science fiction than I do. Where would you put Bradbury coming from, I don't know, if Poe or H.G. Wells up and through the 50s? Where would you put Bradbury? Where, where does, how does he fit into the science fiction canon, as it were? It's funny. I think a lot of people who are seriously into science fiction don't get Bradbury and they don't want to talk about him. Interesting. Um, but I think he's, to me, he's one of the giants. He's up there with, he's not a writer like Heinlein. To me, he's a writer like Poe or Nathaniel Hawthorne. Right. Or Harlan Ellison. Right. It's a different world. Uh, Ursula K. K. Le Guin. Right. It's a different world between these writers of the, the pure imagination and the writers of military science fiction. Or right. Very strict genres. Yeah, he is not interested in Star Wars, like like figuratively speaking, in War in the Stars. That doesn't interest Bradbury in, in this book, or I can't think of any others where he writes about military excursions to take over this or that, and even in a way that, that Star, Star Trek later took on in terms of exploration. It's, he's not a military guy at all, which I think is very interesting. And Bradbury, we have to learn about ourselves before we go learn about others. Right. And it turns out we know very little about ourselves. I think, <laughs> I mean, that's the problem with, with what happens with this Mars colonization effort in, in the Martian Chronicles is that people go and they don't know a thing about themselves or what, they, what they're driven by in themselves is something that is not very good. It's, it's this greed. It's hunger for, for more and more and more. And that, of course, goes terribly wrong. Meanwhile, on Earth, things also go terribly wrong, and there's gigantic wars, which we really don't know the details of. But I wonder, too, having been alive for World War One and World War Two, and also, you know, seeing obviously the, the nuclear weapons used in Japan, and for that matter, mustard gas in the fields of Europe in World War One. I wonder if that didn't shape Bradbury's reaction to or picture of war on earth even though it's not done in detail certainly you get the the idea that war is both incessant and has led to nothing except societal breakdown by the end of the book we get the feeling that on earth there's very little of if anything left to to call home you do get details of that slowly by the end true and it does seem like there has been a nuclear war perhaps I mean, there's talk about burning. I think the phrase Australia has been atomized. Right. That is, that's true. You might have to edit that out. Maybe that's a spoiler. 
Well, it's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but but remember the book does play, take place on Mars and not Australia. Uh, but it does also, I mean, it does bring up, you know, what's happening in Australia today or, or it has been happening in the last few months, which is fairly terrifying as well. So I don't know that we're, we may not be engaged in the kind of worldwide war that, that Bradbury depicts or at least depicts by implication in this book, but things haven't been going as well as they could have here on Earth, even in our present moment. And we don't have Mars to escape to, for better or worse. But it's interesting that you're kind of saying the book works on sort of like a bell curve or a sine wave, that it starts off with a few human beings in Mars and Martians and a few Martians, and then it goes to almost no Martians and a lot of people. During this, this story that you're talking about with young Tommy, uh, the, the ever-changing Tommy. During that time, we actually have large cities that have popped up on, uh, on Mars. We have like New New York and other, other cities on Mars that are populated by humans. It sounds like potentially thousands and thousands, maybe 100,000 people, you know, larger cities that have popped up. But by the end, people have left because of wars on Earth. People have left and we're down to only a few. So it's this weird wave. And when you think about it, Bradbury, in other places, writes a little bit more about religion. I mean, I think he was pretty deeply religious in his own way, in an old school way. I don't think he was evangelical. He didn't write uh, religious themed fiction particularly. But it would be tempting, I think, to write the story of Mars and Mars colonization as like an Adam and Eve. Because when you think of the Adam and Eve story, well, it starts off with two people and you've got God as a character in that story. And then you've got the snake and then you've got, and, you know, and other people like Milton, for example. So Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is basically Adam and Eve, a few angels, God, Christ, the devil. You know, they all appear as ca characters, more or less, in the story that he writes. By the way, if you read Paradise Lost, Paradise Lost has more than a touch of science fiction in it, I would I would argue. I mean, there, Paradise Lost actually does have a war in heaven where Satan is cast down and Christ comes out in what is kind of a, a, a military vehicle. He comes out in a chariot and he's... It's like a chariot of fire. Is, is he throwing mountains or are the angels throwing mountains? I, think I can't it, remember. I think it might be the angels, but I do remember there was lightning bolts coming from the chariot. I mean, it is this is definitely like it's shooting rays. But I think something about Bradbury's project, do you feel like this is a paradise lost? A paradise we could have had? I think it's a paradise we could have had. Yeah. You actually get the Adam and Eve moment. Mm. At the end of the book. Right, right. And it's, Adam rejects it. Right, right, right. It ends with the Adam and Eve sort of moment. You know, the other thing about it is that that as far as the, the Adam and Eve or the paradise possibility is this, this character of the Spencer. So he's the one who kind of opens the door that, hey, this could be a paradise. We could change the way that we live. And I think one of the characters towards the end in a, in a, in a moment that does make Bradbury seem quite radical, basically says the problem is that we didn't change the way we lived, that we came here and tried to repeat the same old mistakes that we'd always made. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a paradise that we could have had, but we didn't because we couldn't change ourselves. And Spencer was right all along. Absolutely. Was he right to do... Now, Spencer, just did not to give everything away, but Spencer commits acts of violence. And I wondered about Bradbury's I mean, I think Bradbury, you know, underlying it all, 
I believe Bradbury is probably a pacifist. You know, having seen World War One and World War Two, and probably some somebody out there knows the answer to this, but he seems like a pacifist. At the same time, I wonder if the acts of violence that Spencer commits, and then in another story where someone has built a replica of the House of Usher from the Poe story, the fall of the House of Usher, which we'll talk about in a sec. So there's two moments where violence happens in the story which could be considered retributive, uh, sort of a revenge type of violence against people who might, in in the story's own formulation, might actually deserve some amount of violence being brought down upon them. I think you'd find you'd have a hard time finding in Bradbury people whose motivations don't make sense. Okay. Certainly, Usher too is coming out of this this mid-century American place that just totally rejects any kind of science fiction, any kind of fantasy, and is pushing a very narrow modernist sense of realism, as if every writer is going to be Ernest Hemingway. Right, and he does mention he does mention Hemingway once in the book, somewhat derogatorily. I think it's in that same story with the fall of the House of Usher that he it was decreed that everyone must write like Hemingway or something like that. It's alluded to the fact that Hemingway was seen as this great paragon of writing in the world of the story, where other forms of writing are actively destroyed. And people who write in the, those ways of Poe and of more imaginative writers, let's say, those people are persecuted, actively persecuted by the government, not just as an aesthetic model, in, like Tom is saying. He's kind of shoving it forward a couple degrees to actually having, having people being persecuted because they're writing like this. And these sort of imaginative stories are considered to be very, very bad for people. I know that when he began writing science fiction, Bradbury once went to a party mm. and someone asked him what he did. And, you know, he was in his 20s, and he ended up getting bullied all night, and people wow. called him Buck Rogers. And Wow. You know, why wow. would anyone be writing this kind of schlock when they could be writing cowboy stories or something? Right, Louis Some Lamar. other kind of schlock. Sure. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about the Usher story, because it's one of my favorites, and it's one that stuck with me from when I was a kid. I remember I'd, I read that, and then for years I had this fantasy of becoming wealthy becoming like uber wealthy and being able to create you know like in physical in the physical world create an actual haunted house that i could live in that would have all of these things in it that would appear as ghosts and other things would appear as vampires rising up from the basement and you know all of these things that i could actually kind of like a horrific smart house that i could live in um you know or or being able to just sort of create holograms very realistic holograms like in uh, the Next Generation series where they have the holodeck and they can go on these fantasy vacations. And, you know, that was very much something, an idea that I really resonated with as a kid. <clears throat> so in the Usher story, what happens is you have this very wealthy kind of Bill Gatesian type of person, although not with the personality of Bill Gates, I must say, does not want to necessarily make the world a better place, moves to Mars and creates, you know, buys up a bunch of land in Mars and creates this replica of the House of Usher from the Poe story, 
replete with bats and mice and it's got the ape from the murders in the rue morgue and it's got uh, i think there's some some vampires pendulum from the pit the oh yes it's got the pendulum from the pit and the pendulum and all of this stuff and of course one of these moral these bureaucrats from like the office of you know the office of moral development or whatever called in to take a look and to see if this is gonna pass muster and he says, absolutely not. You know, we're, we're going to have to shut this down. We're going to bring in demolition crews to tear this place down. We can't have us. This. this is totally immoral. And in this sort of opening foray of the story, when you realize we're in a different moral universe, which is quite jarring for, for Bradbury, who's pretty precise in his morality, the wealthy owner of this usher house kills the man or has the man killed by one of his minions. So the story sort of starts off with a murder in the first few pages. Well, he is a an agent from Moral Climates. Right. <laughs> That's what it is. Which is a wonderful, you know, they're not there to censor specific things, but just make sure everything is nice and realistic. Right. And it, boring. Yep. It has to be a certain moral Unimaginative. Yes. Uh, we, are, we, are, we want a certain moral climate. And once that happens, and he has a little bit like, it becomes a little bit like the post-story Mask of Red Death. He has befriended all of these very wealthy and powerful people from Earth. Uh, he's invited them, and I suppose some of them now live on Mars. Uh, he's invited them for this big soiree at his new palace. And these are all the people who are sort of intellectually, the intellectual backbone of this realism-only and it also has to do with the development of psychology, and I think in, in his time, into this force of there are things in people that are that are bad, there are imaginative elements that are bad or that are harmful for people. We don't need all of that complicated, weird stuff that that's just going to harm people. All that imagination and stuff that's really just harmful. That's not that has no value. At, right. at best and at worst it's harmful don't use words like politics because politics means communism <laughs> right right don't say anything that could mean something he refers to them as clean-minded people and clean-minded is capitalized capital c hyphen capital m right clean-minded and, yes and the name of the wealthy man of course is stendhal <laughs> Which is funny because obviously that's the writer and, and, and he's trying to recruit, Bradbury is trying to recruit everybody onto the literary side. But this is also the beginning of the Red Scare. Yes, we are reading your mail. Yes, we are judging you. We're looking for secret codes in what you say. Right. Don't leave half a jello box around. Right. And the thing of it is, you know, most of us today are very aware of the Senate hearings the McCarthy senators, but but underneath that was a lot of regular people who were losing their jobs in some cases because somebody left a note for their boss to say that this person was seen, you know, at a gathering of communists. This person was a member of the Communist Party in the 30s, which many, many people in the 30s were members of the Communist Party because capitalism appeared to be failing. So, you know, and Bradbury, you know, I have to think was knew all of this. So at the end of the Usher story, Stendhal and his henchmen leave, and let's just say they're the only ones who get to leave the story. And there's no recompense. I mean, the funny thing is Bradbury just lets it happen, and these two sort of ride off into the sunset, and there's no 
There's no follow-up. They're never mentioned again. Never mentioned again. There's no, and there's no, you know how when you're trying to weigh out the morality of a story, you kind of see what happens to these characters in the end. Well, apparently nothing bad happens to them. They just, they do this thing. They're the only survivors. Everyone else has died. And as far as Bradbury, Bradbury seems to be saying, yep, that's fine. (laughs) Bradbury never preaches. Right. That is true. That is true. It's the most beautiful thing where... People do good things, they do bad things, but Bradbury never comes out and wags his finger. And he, he never gives anyone a medal or a pat in the head. And I like the fact, too, that he wants you to feel both understanding of Stendhal in the story, and also, I mean, he does describe Stendhal, and I think his henchman's name is Pike. Pike, who's a Lon Chaney Right, another father. Right, he's a style actor, the senior, and they're they're both kind of described a little bit. I mean, Pike particularly is you know kind of full of this, you know, hate and rage against these people who are bringing about this new world order that has no imagination and no place for fantasy and no place for real speculative fiction or whatever. There's real rage and anger in these guys. There's real hatred there, and Bradbury shows that at the same time that he wants you to. He's getting you on their side, even while showing you how ugly they, they are in a certain way. So it's really complicating the story for the reader. I think when I was 11, I was like, yoo-hoo, you know, like, who cares? That's great. If you can make the House of Usher and then do all this crazy shit and get people to go through it. I mean, that's amazing. Now that I'm a little older, <laughs> you know. You know what? If anyone comes in to try to take my books. I'm with you. I'm with you may not have a fancy giant house like that. Yes, I don't have a pit or a pendulum in my basement, but, uh, you know, that would be... Unfortunately, I think today we're probably in greater danger of having books just be irrelevant, but um, that's why we're here. Why? Why this book has stuck with us? For me, I didn't remember how great a book it was. I didn't remember the arc of the book. Hmm. In fact, I may not have read the whole thing when I was a kid. Uh, but there are certain things, like the fire balloons, like the initial meeting of the Martians and the humans, that I thought about decades after I last read them. Uh, it was really a delight to read them again, but it was something that stuck with me. I mean, we both probably read hundreds of books as kids that sure. we cannot remember. <laughs> Absolutely. I was a little, a little appalled. Recently, I went into a used bookstore and I looked at the science fiction section Mm. to see how many of those books I recognized and didn't actually remember. I actually feel very lucky to not be a modern kid with a modern kid's schedule. That is true. We had a lot of time for boredom, and that also propelled a lot of more interesting things. What, uh, What stuck with you about this? Were there certain stories aside from Usher 2? I think it was the sense of isolation in a lot of the stories. And that's become kind of a theme in other works about Mars and and, uh, space exploration, obviously. 2001, A Space Odyssey, and others. But I think that's because I did feel so often isolated as a kid. And is that sense of being in foreign territory because we moved around so damn much. I was always kind of the new kid. I never, and in that period, especially when you're in middle school and early high school, the social rules are enormously important to kids and the way the social hierarchies. And when you're the new kid, you never know what the 
fuck those are. So you're constantly bumbling around trying to figure it out. And what I see now in this book is how painful and how many mistakes were made by the people on Mars in trying to make things into what they wanted them to be. Whether it was, you know, the Martian that they wanted to be their son or, you know, the hot dog stand that was going to be the best hot dog stand in the universe. Or the the people who were out by themselves and just had robots. Right. Just, yes, I'm going to create a robot family and the robot family is going to sort of fulfill my needs for companionship and company. I was always, you know, I think I was, I met a lot of disappointment in terms of expecting suddenly to get into middle school and have it be this big like oh my god i'm gonna have all these friends and we're gonna do all these things and it turns out i had no friends and we didn't really do anything i mean i had a few friends but i i did it wasn't at all what i expected it and it was that that gap of what i was so hoping and expecting that experience to be like and then what it actually was that just made it worse and that's what i think makes a lot of the people's experiences in who colonized mars in this book worse is because the expectation of their experience on Mars is so, so totally different than what they find. I think every adolescence is lonely. I mean, you're even alienated from yourself. Oh, for sure. You don't understand what's going on in your body. You don't understand what's going on. You know, I mean, I remember that sweet, sweet spot, which actually this book is a product of for me, that sweet moment before you understand anything about sexuality or you don't really i mean you understand a little bit i mean it's always sort of there but but sexuality isn't that important you know you ha- you're not really hit puberty you don't have all of that going on the world is just so much simpler it's like you have your parents you have whatever that relationship is you have a few friends i mean everything is is sort of clear in a way and nice and then it all blows up then it becomes something that it's it's hard to even figure out where you are or who you are in all that turmoil of later in adolescence. I think I missed that sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there was a time when I it, things when I th- thought things were simple or I knew what yeah. was going on. Well, yeah. I, I kind of pretended well. I mean, that's the thing. That's the other thing that I that I liked about so many of the books that I read in that period, I don't remember ex- exactly for the Martian Chronicles if this was true, because it probably wouldn't be. But then I looked to books to give me models of how to behave, like uh, Hercule Poirot from the Agatha Christie series, you know. I read just, all those in yeah, a single summer. Really? Well, I they're all, sixth grade. Yeah, it's sort of a model. It's sort of a model of like writing and, 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 uh, you know, once you kind of get the hang of it, you really you can you can you can devour those books in a couple of days. You know, each one, but but his sort of attention to detail and trying to be so cerebral. And I remember trying to trying to be super orderly. I'm not a real organized person by nature. I'm not super like clean my room every day kind of kid. I certainly wasn't that, but I tried for a while because I thought that's what Hercule Poirot would do. So I'm going to start making my bed. I'm just going to start organizing my room, everything in its place so I can really clear my mind to think just like Hercule Poirot because uh, I had no idea what was going on or who I was. But, you know, but it's that sweet, like I could just imagine my way into it. Uh, it's fun. Okay. And speaking of uh, adolescence and imagination, Our next episode of Life in Words will be about the Beat Generation, something I got into later in adolescence and was very influential to me. The Beat writers, including Allen Ginsberg, 
Jack Kerouac, of course, William S. Burroughs, uh, Gregory Corso, Gary Snyder. I think those, oh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I think those are all the big ones. Tom and I will be taking up the beat writers. At least a few of them. At least a few of them. Centering on their works from the 1950s, but maybe a little bit later. Uh, The Beats is a phenomenon, I guess, would be a phenomenon of the 50s and into the 60s, but I think are probably subsumed in the the culture of the 60s and 70s fairly quickly. But uh, anyway, so our next episode will be on the Beats. Tom, any last words about uh, Bradbury or the Martian Chronicles? Anything that we've missed? I do hope that we've left at least some people a, a longing to read the books for the first time or Absolutely. go back to them again. Absolutely. I'd also recommend The Illustrated Man, which was a, the first Ray Bradbury that I encountered uh, in fifth grade. I had a teacher who read the introduction of the of the uh, Illustrated Man to the class, and I was kind of hooked on it. And I read those stories periodically through fifth grade and into sixth grade and then moved on to the Martian Chronicles after that. But uh, all of his books are interesting. All of his books that I've read have made some great points and have a lot of really interesting characters and things that will stay with you. Ray Bradbury was not a writer who I think wanted to write science fiction for the sake of writing science fiction. He actually had something to, to say and he wanted his work to stay with you. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the first episode of Life in Words, a podcast about literature and life. I'm your host, Nate Beyer, with my co-host, Tom Olivieri. This podcast has been recorded, produced, and edited by me, Nate Beyer. Music today from Steve Combs, downloaded off freeinternetmusicarchive.org. Thank you again for listening, and stay tuned for our next podcast on Life in Words, which will be about the beats. Bye-bye.